stopping the ultimate evil. Mm. Ah, fuck. Sorry, puppy just bit my foot. Fuck's <laughs> 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 sake. Hello and welcome back to episode 32 of Double Reel. This is the second reel of our monthly magazine-style podcast for film nerds. Hopefully you've caught up with the first reel, had a brief intermission, and refueled ready to take on this mighty second instalment of Nerdy Film Chat. If you haven't caught the first reel yet, please do go back to your app and download and listen to it, so you're up to date with all the features we've covered already this month. These include our roundup of news and spotlight on some of the films we watched this month, our classic and recommended feature Birdman, our hidden gem Nightcrawler, the one that got away about Martin Scorsese's Joker, and our remake Hate Watch of 2015's Fantastic Four. Now in Reel 2, we bring you our big conversation where we tackle a weighty topic and give it a fuller, i.e. longer, discussion. First, a very warm welcome back to my co-host, James Adamson. Hello, everyone. Thanks for that warm welcome. So the the rest of the, the episode, the features had a sort of, not a theme as such compared to some of the other themes we've done, like sci-fi and conspiracy films and everything else, but all the other features were released in the year that James, my co-host, turned 18. Just thought it'd be interesting. First of all, it meant that the films we were discussing weren't too dated, because sometimes I make James sit through some quite old films. Um, uh. Secondly, it was quite an interesting year for film. Uh, and it's also quite interesting to look at, like, you know, what were films doing you know, when I became sort of of an age when I'm sort of the person, or when, when you're, James, when you're the sort of kind of main target audience and it's your era of film, what what, what was happening? And I thought that was quite a good one to look at. The The big conversation topic doesn't come from that year, but I thought we'd do it because I think that the, the, original, the original films at the start of this conversation are, are among your favourites, among your favourite trilogies. And I just thought it'd be an interesting conversation, quite topical because they have something new out recently. So our big conversation is about the Lord of the Rings franchise uh, overall. So starting with the, um, well, there is a there is an older animated film to discuss, but then there's Peter Jackson's uh, uh, trilogy of films, uh, multi-Oscar winning in the end, uh, then the Hobbit trilogy that, that followed, and the recent Rings of Power TV series that, that's just been released. Um, it's... Uh, It's kind of a major major franchise without having a huge amount of kind of uh, sort of original story material to kind of work with, mate. But it it's been a hugely influential trilogy, especially from the, from the year two thousand. What's your what's your history with Lord of the Rings films? Um, I remember being about six, and you'd take me around to a friend's house, and they were in the middle of the second one. And that's it was just... the, that's the exact first memory that I was thinking of as well. And it was the bit with the wargs, and I was like, "What the fuck is this?" Because yeah. up until that point, I'd only ever watched like Disney, mm-hmm. and there's these big, horrible, rabid wolf things, where, you know, eating these guys, mm. and I thought, oh, I don't know how I feel about that. And then I couldn't tell you the first time I properly watched them. Was it maybe? Were you living in Leytonstone at the time? And I think you just got the extended edition and you put them on, and we had to. Yeah, maybe we had to. We, I, I think we watched like one a night for about three nights because like yeah. by the end of it, it's like four hours and you think, oh, should we put a film on or is it Return of the King? Right, hang on, let's put it on at five in the evening. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's my first memory. And I just remember being absolutely, you know. So you'd have been somewhere between maybe 10 or 12. Uh, probably 11, at least 11, maybe 12. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, I mean, given that they're 12 rated and given that the original books were, you know, that they were aimed at a... They weren't exactly young adult fiction in, in in the vein of kind of Hunger Games, but I think they were intended to be read by all ages and especially the young. 
So it was a good age for you to to watch it, I suppose. Um, what did you? I mean, when you first actually got a chance to watch them all the way through, what did you? What did you feel about them? Um, they are quite long, yeah. <laughs> and I think that's the only criticism I would have of the Lord of the Rings films is that they are absurdly long, and it's why I got so excited about the TV show because. It, TV it it seems to lend itself to long form, doesn't it? Um, but my first, thing, I think it was just how how rich the story is, how much story they managed to tell, and because the, the films still miss out a massive chunk from the books. Yes, that's right. And just the kind of the universe that they managed to create and bring to life just so vividly, like it feels like you're in a different universe entirely. It doesn't feel like you can look at that and go, "Oh, that's where that is." You know, you know what I mean? Like, you know, when you watch Inception, you know that they filmed in that city or they filmed it in Paris, or you watch The Dark Knight, and that's obviously Chicago or New York, but they're kidding on Some it's sort of like, merger, yeah. But that doesn't look like anything you've ever seen before, and I thought that was really—I just thought it was really brilliantly done. Yeah, it's a very, it's a masterful achievement, and not only was it, you know, successful Oscar-winning like trilogy, it changed CGI. Yeah, you know, it just completely. it just raised the bar for like big blockbuster yeah. films generally. It said you, you know, it is possible and therefore desirable to tell a good story with a lot going on in it, and you know, big ambitious narratives. I'm sure Marvel took note. I'm sure Marvel took note and said you don't need to just have your traditional kind of two hours of bish bash bosh. You can actually tell stories that extend uh and 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 you know challenge the audience a little bit uh and 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 definitely with cgi i mean we'll we'll talk about how the cgi has progressed across the the trilogy because i think there's an element of the cgi was used incredibly well in the first lord of the rings trilogy but then you look back and you realize that often there wasn't as much cgi as you think in some of it right there's an interesting merger of cgi and live wasn't there in a way that they the way that they filmed it yeah, a lot like kind of like Mad Max Fury Road kind of vibes where they just kind of tried to enhance the landscapes yeah. around them, but yeah, yeah. used as much as they could, just natural setting. Yeah, you don't don't use it when you don't need to. And yeah. I think that the world building, it's really interesting because the, the, the Lord of the Rings books, you know, Fellowship of the Ring, Two Towers Return of the King, I think they came out in the 1950s. I think the Hobbit book was written in the, the 1930s. Uh, and what obviously happened in, in the intervening period was World War II, which I think had a profound effect on Tolkien, which is why the, um, the Lord of the Rings films are quite dark and, and talk about essentially a, 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 a conflict that threatens civilization. Um, but the, the world building that was in those books is probably unparalleled at that time. I think it set a standard, certainly in fantasy fiction, that everyone else is... Um, has had to live up to. I mean, it depends. If you read that sort of thing, you'll have read all sorts now where the world building is very deep and very rich. But it's almost like it has to be because Tolkien was like the, the original gangster of this sort of thing. And if you aren't prepared to get deep into it, it's going to look pretty thin compared to other stuff in the genre. And I think once Lord of the Rings, which many thought was kind of unfilmable until Jackson filmed it, right? Uh now you're like, oh wow, you can build really major, um, you know, deep worlds, civilizations, languages, and all of these things. And I think that was the original sort of set of books that did that. That a whole everything from, you know, Terry Pratchett to, um, you know, Joe Abercrombie to, you know, uh, you know, George Martin uh, and Game of Thrones owes owes a debt to Lord of the Rings. Yeah, and and it, it's. I mean, a, a bit of a bit of background to it is that they tried to film it in the 70s live action 
Uh, John Borman had a go. Ridley Scott was thinking about it. There was this period of the 70s where people start to get really deeply ambitious. It's the time they tried to do Dune, and we talked about Dune in, in a one that got away. And it was like the ambition was there, but the resources weren't. The special effects couldn't live up to it. You know, no one had really wanted to do it, couldn't work it out. And then in 1978, there was a an animated version of Lord of the Rings. Now, I don't know if you've seen that. Uh, yes, it was uh, the seventies. Yeah, yeah. I've not, I've not seen it. No, it's it's interesting. It's a, one one aspect of it is is quite, in, you know, sort of made an impact in that there are some scenes from it that are very vivid. That were the Ralph Bakshi is the animator who who did that film, and he came up with some scenes that aren't strictly speaking in the books, uh, but were so vivid that Peter Jackson reproduced them for the um, for the film. The most famous one being in Fellowship of the Ring, when the um, the, the the Dark Riders, the what are they, the uh, they the ring wraiths, the ring wraiths, when they go in and into the, the the inn and go stabbing into the the um, the bed, and it's actually uh, they've actually already made their escape and just put pillows under the sheets. That's not in the book. That was in the animated film, and it was so vivid that Peter Jackson reused it. Right. Other than that, it was they, he tried to film the whole thing, ran out of money. He got about halfway through the three book trilogy, and kind of it was hoping to make a second film, couldn't get it made. So he ended up trying to tie up all the loose ends of the of the storyline in in one film. And it's a bit, it's got some interesting things. It's and it uses a lot of rotoscoping. So they filmed battle scenes and then coloured them in to make them look animated. So it has a really distinct look. Um, but it's slightly weird because while it's got that, it's also got normal hand-drawn animation for a lot of the characters like the Hobbits and everything. So it, it's a bit uneven. Right. But I think it does have a lot of... Ralph Bakshi was a big Lord of the Rings fan, so it does have a lot of the tone and style of Lord of the Rings. Just, you know, it wasn't um, it wasn't able to do the full story. Um, and after that, I think there was an element of, can you do Lord of the Rings? Really? Is that just too much to ask? But then when, when CGI uh, you know, came along and the possibilities of it started to be seen, in the mid to late 90s, Peter Jackson was signed up to do it. Right. Now, how much, how much do you know about the history of Peter Jackson sort of signing up to do Lord of the Rings? Um, not much at all, actually. Um, I, I knew it was like his baby and like his like lifelong project, but if you had to ask me what he did before it, I couldn't tell you. Well, it, well, it was it was an it was an interesting convergence of of circumstances that meant these films could get made because the 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 the, the studio or the production company got the rights to make the film is New Line Cinema, and they're not always known for doing kind of massive blockbusters, and they're not always known for doing films that would be contesting the Oscars. Put it that way, right? Yeah, and. And we look back at it now, and Return of the Wing, Return of the King, won tons of Oscars. Do you know what I mean? It was almost like body of work, wasn't it? It was like they were almost rewarding the, the trilogy, weren't they? When they gave all those Oscars to Return of the King, yeah, yeah. Um, and then the you know the money that it made and the Oscars that it won was actually kind of not entirely without precedent, but kind of a fantasy, you know, science fiction, not science fiction, but you know, fantasy, you know, sword and sorcery blockbuster film that's made a billion dollars at the, at the box office doesn't normally win Best Picture. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So now you look back and go, oh, Lord of the Rings, it was this huge thing. But it was kind of unprecedented. I think it's partly because New Line was, 
you know, I think they did the Freddy Krueger films. I think they did like horror and thriller and stuff like that. And they weren't known for doing kind of massive films and they wanted to kind of prove themselves. So they were kind of, they, they got the film rights ahead of all the big names like Paramount and people like that. So they wanted to kind of make their mark, which meant they were kind of, you wonder if maybe one of the big studios would maybe have not been as open-minded about what kind of film to make and maybe wouldn't have given the opportunity to make the right film the right way. But for whatever reason, New Line were prepared to do that, and you know, partly because they wanted to make their own mark. And they gave a chance to Peter Jackson, who hadn't had the kind of pedigree you'd expect to suddenly get what was a huge amount of money, a huge amount of creative control, and the right to make all three films. It wasn't a case of we'll make Fellowship and see how it goes. They did all three films. And again, that's well known now, but that was unprecedented at the time. And it's weird because Peter Jackson started out in the late 80s doing kind of low-budget, kind of schlocky horror comedies. And they were a lot of fun, right? Bad Taste, um, Brain Dead, they feature zombies being killed with a lawnmower and lots of kind of, you know, he's he's got about £5.50 of, of, of budget, but he manages to kind of make a movie. It's a lot of fun, <laughs> right? And he tr- he then, he got a bit more ambitious with something called Meet the Feebles, which was kind of, it was kind of a sicko adult version, not adult in the you know, in a dodgy sense, but for grown-ups um, version of, of of kind of puppet stuff called Meet the Feebles, sort of on a you know on a similar line to um, Team America. It's like someone doing something normally, you know, without that kind of tone, which which flopped. And then he did a film called Heavenly Creatures, which is very very highly regarded and makes use of CGI. And shows a lot of imagination and flair. And everyone, oh, this Peter Jackson's a bit quite good. Do you know what I mean? But it wasn't like a massive box office hit. I think it was Kate Winslet's film debut or one of her first films. Um, it's based on the true life story of these two women who you know, two, were young young girls who, who, who kill one of their mothers because they, they have developed this very obsessive relationship. So it's very good and marks him out as a talented filmmaker, but isn't the sort of thing that says, oh, let's give this guy a blockbuster. And then, he, but, but on the back of it, he went to Hollywood and made a film called The Frighteners, which is another quite good film, but again, flopped, right? So he has marked himself out as a talented bloke, but has not killed it at the box office yet. He's not done a genre film that's, you know, been a, a hit or anything. Yeah. And yet someone said, no, mate, we're going to let you do Lord of the Rings. So he must have given one hell of a pitch meeting, right? Yeah. He must have absolutely wowed them when he said he, what he was going to do. And someone decided that that was going to work and let him do it. So a, yeah, lot of people, must, yeah. a lot of people had to have a lot of vision to say, go on, Peter Jackson, make these films. Now, you, you presumably know a fair bit about how he went about making the films, right? Because the law of that is kind of what, quite well known. What do you know about how he went about making and filming them and, 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 and the scheduling of filming them? So, I know that he was not done over 18 months. Something like or, that, yeah. 18, 18 months, two years. two years. Yeah, yeah, something like so that. So, that's very bold, isn't it? Because you wouldn't get that now. Like, James Cameron did Avatar and has only just released the sequel recently, like in the past couple of weeks, and is now filming all of them at once. Yeah. And that's like a 13-year gap. So, to... To let someone just film three what films like that is it's bold and it shows the amount of faith they had in the guy. It's a leap of faith of anything yeah. because he he must you like you say he must have given some sort of pitch. He must have shown that he knew these stories inside out. How he was going to do them. How he was going to save the money. Probably by doing it all at once, all at once to stop production 
the, yeah. the, so they don't have to come back to production and like you know you don't have to what what happens I suppose what happens with sequels is that they do well in the first one and then the stars are like well I want more money now mm-hmm. whereas if you just say look we're going to film this for two years here's the fee <laughs> you know what I mean so yeah and it's it's very much more common now that they do that. They say we're going to make all the films back to back. The only thing I'd heard of where they did the similar thing was they filmed both Back to the Future sequels together. But again, that was only after the first Back to the Future film had been a massive hit. Whereas this one, they said, off you go, Peter, make three films. Yeah. And now that's quite common. Um, do you, I mean, have you heard all the stories about how he actually went about filming like three films at the same time, more or less, or, or back to back? Um, I, I've I've never read into like the the actual techniques, but I know the general gist of he did it for two years, and that was it. I know that they had some trouble with um, is it Sean Bean doesn't like flying, so he just went he climbed up a mountain, yeah. and things like that. But no, enlighten me. There was a couple of things like that they would in order to meet the schedule, they were filming in two places at once. So he'd be at one of the sets calling action and looking at what was going on on the scene, and and then he would stop and he would look at a a screen I mean nowadays it would be an iPad but they didn't have iPads back then but somehow he's on the phone or looking through a, a monitor or something uh, of the other set and saying right action and they were filming in two locations at once now it's quite common for first and second unit to be filming you know at once and the directorate doesn't have to be in both places at once but he had to give a lot of control to essentially a second unit to actually filming actual scenes from the film so yeah. it's like yeah I'm filming this over the side of one crag whether they're doing the mountains or whatever um, the Misty Mountains, and over here he's doing kind of, um, you know, a Saruman scene or a or a uh, or or a you know a Minas Tirith scene, and he is. The logistics of it were mind-boggling because they were often filming in two you know two two places at once, and he had to be either on the phone at one of them, or you know, or somehow trusting someone else to to, to shoot you know what he told them to shoot. Yeah, um, which is which is mad, really. That that is that's a lot of faith. Did the uh, did the second like the assistant director of the second unit get a best director Oscar for Return of the King? Because I feel like they should have. Um, no, uh, no, yeah, well, that, that, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, that's one one day we'll we'll have a discussion about auteur theory because I I kind of subscribe to auteur theory in a way because I think the director is such an important role to play, and given that we write scripts, it's perhaps a bit heretical for us to say that you know the director more than the writer kind of defines the story. But I do think you look back and go, you know, the, the great directors do determine how a film is going to be, right? Yeah. Um, and yet at the same time, when you see these stories about how some of these big films get made, it takes so many people to make it that, you know, maybe the best director Oscar is a bit unfair. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But he is he is the one who kind of had the vision to say, we're going to do it like this and film in New Zealand, essentially set up the New Zealand film industry, <laughs> you know? I yeah. mean, you know, I, you know, New Zealand. I mean, I was in New Zealand as a kid, and New Zealand used to make kind of little films about kids on bikes, you know. <laughs> and and suddenly they have to have the kind of facilities that you know only Hollywood has to make the biggest film of the year, you know. Um, and, and it, it's also also worth bearing in mind that in 1999, Phantom Menace came out, which was a pure CGI fest, right? And was the start of another trilogy and had, you know, a lot more kind of commercial backing behind it because it's Star Wars, right? And George Lucas had the money to make Phantom Menace himself. He didn't go and get finance for anyone else. He had $120 million of his own money that he was able to spend on making Phantom Menace and he filmed the whole thing at his Skywalker Ranch. Do you know what I mean? So there was already this fear by the time 2001... um, 
Fellowship of the Ring comes out. They were filming during that same time. So this is fear. Is this going to be a load of kind of CGI bollocks like Phantom Menace? Do you know what I mean? There was At the yeah. time, it was like, is this going to work? And New Line would probably have gone under if it hadn't worked because they invested so much in these films. And I think they had to do reshoots after the first one came out. So it's not like they they filmed all three and then put them in the can and then released them one after the other. I think they were still working on two and three after one came out. But all the same, there's a huge amount of kind of risk and, and almost rewriting the rule book about how to make blockbuster films for these films to come out, right? But it's fair to say they worked, yeah? No, they yeah, 100%. They've, uh, it's, I... I don't think I can think of a trilogy that you know had such an impact in the way it does both in terms of blockbuster and franchise scale, but also in terms of awards. So you can make you know Marvel can make a film and it can make two billion and all these things, but Lord of the Rings didn't didn't obviously make two and a half billion, but it made a lot of money. But it was also appreciated by the Academy, and I think that's what's quite rare about it. Um, yeah, Star Wars doesn't get that recognition. You know, it's. Yeah, I mean now I mean you do see it a little more nowadays like Black Panther was nominated for best picture and and they do seem to be more open to genre films being recognized at the Oscars but again it was unprecedented um before Peter Jackson delivered this with Lord of the Rings. So what, yes. what 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 is it about the what it is about the films or the stories that the films are based on? What what what, what is it about them you think that works so well? I don't even know. I think it's a case of they, the uh, it's hard to fight when you're watching a film like when you're, it's bad. You see the flaws in it, mm. and the only flaw that you can really say about Lord of the Rings is that it is very very long. But that's because Peter Jackson wanted to do the the books justice. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's hard to pick out a flaw. The story is so rich. You get so invested in the characters. There's a real sense of good and evil, and you get invested in wanting the good guys to win. It's just so beautifully filmed. The scores is stunning. The CGI is very good. It changed the game. Performances are, you know, I can't think of a bad performance across the entire trilogy. I think it's just everything about it, when you marry all of those things together and, you know, sew them into that that film tapestry, it's just, it's just perfect. Do you, do you think as well as the sort of more traditional kind of things that you get in these films, you've obviously got the, the powerful wizard played by Ian McKellen, and yeah. you've got your traditional action hero characters like Viggo Mortensen's character and Orlando Bloom's character and so on. Um, but do you think perhaps the fact that they the, the, the central characters are these kind of sort of quiet, unassuming, little hairy-footed creatures whose, whose main sort of uh, main strengths are sort of their bravery, their loyalty, and their you know their kind of resourcefulness? That that kind of it's almost like we it wouldn't have worked without Aragorn's big speeches and incredible fight scenes, but it kind of neither would it have worked without Frodo and Sam being the heart of the story. Yeah, is that fair? Yeah, I think that's what it's you. It's like it's almost like Greta Thunberg's kind of phrase like no one's too small to make a difference because the entire yeah. the yeah. entire story balances on two hobbits, the smallest creatures in the in Middle Earth, going across and, you know, 
encountering things they would never have encountered before. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things. I mean, they managed to take a lot of the kind of the themes of the original book intact. The fact that the fact that Gandalf kind of has to. He's kind of using Frodo. He sends the ring to Frodo, doesn't he? And he's kind of he's kind of hoping that Frodo is going to go on the quest, isn't he? Because I yeah. think deep down he knows that if you just send the usual warriors along, they're going to do what happened before. They're going to fall out, kill each other, and you're going to have the same problem again. Yeah, And he knows he needs someone smaller with integrity, but that's going to completely transform the life of some poor you know, young hobbit who was minding his own business down in the Shire. And now, now that the... the, the the free world rests on his shoulders. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And there's that brilliant scene in uh, in the Fellowship of the Ring where they're all arguing about how they're going to get the, the the ring to Mount Doom and drop it in, and and will it work? And Frodo steps up and says, "I'll take the ring, but I don't know the way." And there's this brilliant look on um, uh, Ian McKellen's face, where on the one hand it's like that's what I hoped would happen, but at the same time it's going, "Jesus, Frodo's like you know Frodo's." Taking on, do you know what I mean? He's kind he's of taking on too much, yeah, heart, yeah. Heart, heartbroken and satisfied at the same time because that's what he needs to happen. But he knows that that's kind of a terrible thing that he's kind of made him do. And it's like it's a terrific piece of film acting by Ian McKellen. And it's like all the special effects and and all the visuals are are obviously very important. But that kind of the personal kind of stories and the themes and the thoughts survive. You know, the the personal and and the and and the huge manage to coexist in the story. Like towards the end, where there's the big battle scene, and the hobbits are that uh, Merry and Pippin are kind of there as well, and they're all kind of putting on their battle faces, and they don't know if they're going to live through the battle. And it's actually quite emotional. It's like these guys are going in; they know they have to fight. They're not, you know, they're not heroes. They, you know, they're about three foot tall, but they <laughs> have to fight, and they're going to fight for each other, and they don't know if they're going to make it. And the 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 film has an emotional. It's it 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 keeps going the themes of 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 how the the free world battles against a giant sort of essential kind of, you know, fantasy Nazi, you know, threat, but it also has the kind of personal stories and, and it makes you feel something. It's really genuinely, you know, it, it makes you feel like this kind of silly little story of elves and elves and hobbits really matters, you know? Um, do you, do you have a favorite of the three films? I really like two tales. I'm kind of the same. I think Fellowship of the Ring is great and it's very rewatchable because it's got some really iconic kind of scenes and kind of sets up the story and everything else. But it does kind of go, at the end you go, oh, we need to watch the next film then. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And, and Fellowship of the Ring, not Fellowship of the Ring, Return of the King obviously has the resolution of the story and this, this amazing stuff. But Two Towers just has everything. It has some amazing battles. as the introduction of Gollum and everything else. Um, and... It could easily, the middle film, it could easily have fallen prey to, oh, this is just kind of a, a stepping stone on the way to the kind of end of the story. But it's really incredible, isn't it? The, the, the fight scene at Helm's Deep is just one of the best things that's ever been put on screen, isn't it? Yeah, it's... You just... You can't believe that that film's 20 years old now, even if you were to watch it now. Obviously, it's a bit dated compared to, you know, the crazy you know CGI we have going on now, but I just... I just, you just—it's hard to not enjoy. If you don't like the Lord of the Rings films, then there's something wrong with you. Yeah, and I, I really I, hate the argument. Sorry, I really hate the argument. Folk are like, "Oh, they're just so long." I, I fell asleep. It's like just fucking stay awake. You know what I mean? Like invest some time into it. But it's like it's so long, and yet people will binge watch like six episodes of a TV series. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, 
it's like the Lord, the Lord of the Rings now. I mean, obviously, seeing them on the big screen is. Uh, I was fortunate enough to see all of them on the big screen when they came out, and you know that sort of thing. It's obviously designed for a big screen experience, but um, if you've got a decent setup at home and a decent sized telly and all of that sort of thing, you could watch this, and it's it's nine hours of the best kind of most exciting stuff outside of maybe the the good series of Game of Thrones that you're ever going to see. You know. It's and and I think we've we'll, we'll come to the the TV series and whether we, whether we're still in in the golden age of television, but when we went through that golden age of television, didn't we? Whether you know you just look the, the great narratives and everything else seem to be in TV shows more than films. Yeah. Although I still love the two-hour movie format. Lord of the Rings is one of the few things that you could say, yeah, let's watch nine hours. Let's binge watch nine hours of like an amazing story, you know. Yeah, yeah. Is there anything? I mean, the it is quite it is quite dark, uh, you know, and it's kind of a there's a lot of kind of people hanging off the side of like incredibly high crags. No one ever seems to do anything at sort of great, at sea level, do they? Um, but it's almost quite stylish, isn't it? That they're, that they're always kind of doing things at high altitude. And Peter Jackson got the helicopter out, and, you know, just used used the opportunity to film. New Zealand's kind of you know scenery and everything. Um, do do you, do you feel like sort of the, the sort of the the tone is is ever kind of a bit much like oh we're all you know everyone's about to die or anything or is you know is it are you are you are you, are you fine with the kind of the darkness of of the of the trilogy? I think it's quite a dark story. I think that's what the Hobbit films are for, mm. like a little bit more lighthearted. I mean, that's what the book was written for. He wrote it for yeah. was it his grandchild or his child? Yeah, the Hobbit's definitely aimed at a younger audience. Than, um, it's 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 like the early Harry Potter books versus the later Harry Potter yeah, books in a so way, isn't it? The story is about defeating the ultimate evil, and the ultimate evil isn't going to be all happy, you know, sunshine and rainbows. So I think people know what they're getting into pretty much as soon as they start watching it because the whole Galadriel speech showing the Mount Doom battle and all that stuff, I don't think it's... Yeah, I think it's... I think it's fine, as the the, the darkness that it has, the, the, the level that it's at, I suppose. Yeah. Have, have you read the books? No. I've read The Hobbit because it took me less time to read The Hobbit than I did watch The Hobbit. So. Yeah, that is... That is so it made more sense for me to do that. Yeah, I mean, the... The, the 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 books are really interesting. That it's, and it, we'll maybe come to this a bit later, or maybe we could do it now. Is that the the Lord of the Rings has this huge fandom, the original books, which which I guess helped Peter Jackson because Peter Jackson was able to convince the studio that these books had been read for the best part of half a century by all kinds of people who are massive fans of it of all ages, and if you give those fans the proper version of the original books, you'll you'll be successful. Yeah. So it was maybe the first example. I know there's been Batman and Superman films and everything else, but it was maybe the first example of a film studio being convinced to do the film the way the books really are. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because that is what's going to work, you know? That's actually, it's like the commercial success and creative success of the film are all bound up in doing it properly. At this, and, and it kind of introduced this idea of a, mo- a large and motivated fan base needing to be satisfied for the films to be successful. And and I think that was one of the keys to, to the success. Even then, I remember at the time talking to people who were kind of maybe... I mean, I enjoyed the books. Uh, they're very good. 
I mean, they've got no female characters in because Tolkien was like an Oxford don. He didn't really know how to talk to women, so he didn't know how to write them. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so all the female characters of any great... I know the Galadriel's in there and the... Eowyn. Eowyn's in there. Um, but he had to invent a couple of female characters and give them more to do than is in the original book. Um, and there's obviously a lot of stuff. I mean, Tolkien was actually a scholar of like ancient languages and ancient kind of peoples. And he would, the world building that he did in the books is one of the reasons that the books are so strong. But there's also bits where you'll get 20 pages of him telling you what they ate for breakfast and what songs they like to sing by the campfire. And and Peter Jackson would, for Lord of the Rings went, well, I can't put all of that in. Do you know what I mean? I can't have 25 minutes of people singing songs by the campfire to, because Tolkien was so interested in ancient Celtic cultures that he, he wrote books that kind of gave you that level of detail. So he had this very, very fine balancing act of doing the films true to the original books while leaving stuff out. And there's still people going, oh, they should have put in Tom Bombadil. Um, that, they cut that whole character out, I don't like that. There's, you know, and, and after, the, after the first film, there are people going, oh, he better, not, he better not cut the Ents out of this. That's a really, really important bit of the story. So there's a lot of people still with their arms folded going, you better do this right, do you know what I mean? You better not leave out my <laughs> favourite part of the books, you know? And yeah. yet he managed to get it all right. I think for the theatrical versions of the of the films, I think Christopher Lee was quite pissed off because after the first film, Saruman's part was cut short so much and there's so much more of Saruman in the books and a fair bit more of Saruman in the extended versions. But in the actual theatrical releases, um, you know, they've cut so much of Christopher Lee out of films two and three, which is a real shame. But he managed to kind of, walk that tightrope that everyone has to walk with like famous IP now, don't they? That says, satisfy the fans, give them what they want, but still make a good film. And I wonder now if you made the Lord of the Rings films now and people went, okay, this is the, um, uh, this is the, the changes that we're going to make. We're going to introduce some female characters and make it all kind of work a little bit better um, for, for all, all audiences. Uh, whether that would have been accepted by everybody? Mm. Yeah. Because fan bases seem to have gone a bit more, um, how would I describe it? Um, they've got a bit sort of, I know, counterproductive. Like there's two, you know, you ha there's so much more fan service seems to be required now to kind of satisfy the, the, the original fan base that doesn't always work for the film. And I wonder if Peter Jackson's creative choices would have been accepted so readily if he'd made them 20 years later. It's kind of a circular argument because it's only because of Peter Jackson that, that these things are getting made on the scale that they are. But do you know what I mean? I think fan bases respond differently to these stories now, I think. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I think back then it would have been easier to do as opposed to doing it now. Um, but uh, I think you're right when you talk about the whole pages upon pages of songs and all the Celtic scriptures and things like that. And I think obviously you can't include everything in the book, but Tom Bombadil was one that was certainly missing because he's one of the most powerful characters in the entire thing. But he also doesn't, he's like not that important to the story. Do you know what I mean? He's one of those weird characters that he, he adds. He, he adds a huge amount of atmosphere and tells you a lot about the world that they live in. And it's but it's, other it's, than a, that, it's, it's a great read. But if you look at it and go, does it hurt the story to cut this out? Will will people yeah. be, will people be confused in an hour when Aragorn's doing something? The answer is no. You know, he had he had, he had to cut something. Do you know what I mean? 
Yeah, and I think that was the right call, but I think I can understand why people were upset. Yeah, I mean, they were upset, but at the end of the day, they got their Lord of the Rings films, and it's probably the best adaptation of pre-existing kind of stories that there's ever been. I mean, you can talk about Avengers Endgame and, and all those sorts of things, and obviously the Marvel's sort of phase... Was that phase two or phase three of Marvel? Whatever it was, that end phase, game, phase three. Phase three. That, that, that climax to phase three of Marvel was obviously incredibly successful, and, and, and there were some massive fans of the Marvel and the Avengers films and everything else. But really, I mean, I'm struggling to think of a... Maybe apart from Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy, right? There are very, very few films that stand up and say this is how you adapt a tricky story. I mean, it's three books, so much in it. Is there anything you think Peter Jackson should have done differently to bring those films to the screen? Um, um, I don't think so. It's one of those ones like that new Batman film that came out that everyone hated for being too long. I didn't think there was a single scene in it that you could have taken out. What, Matt Reeves' Batman film? Yeah, I thought, I thought that fucking I, tremendous. I... I I haven't seen. Has there been bad reviews of that? I think that's that's one of the that's one well, of the few Batman films that stands up to Nolan's trilogy, in my humble opinion. We don't go to the cinema very often because of obviously two pups and things like that. But when we do, we like to go to like the VIP thing and make just like the occasional date night out of it. So when we go, we want it to be a film that's like you know a getting good reviews. Yeah. Because what what have us? What did we go and see? We went to see that fucking Spencer in there, and it was just a waste of money. So. You're, you're the average film fan. You haven't got that many trips to the cinema in you. You know, you I mean, want, I'd you, rather you, catch you, it. You, you don't want to. You don't want to have wasted your like one night out of the week slash month, whatever it is, right? Yeah, ex- exactly. So, you know, arranging people to look after puppies and then parking up and then walking to the cinema. You know, you want to make it like a, a good night. So, when we saw reviews for Matty's Batman, we thought they were good, but my missus didn't like it for it being too long. In the same way that I don't think she likes Lord of the Rings for it for being too mm-hmm. long. But when I think of the Lord of the Rings, I'm obviously I'm not, I've not watched the extended edition. I watched the normal editions for preparing for this podcast, mm-hmm. and I'm really racking my brains for scenes that I don't think need to be in it. Do you know what I, I mean? I think you're right. It's, uh, I, yeah, I think you're right. And I also think it's very... I remember at the time, I wondered why Peter Jackson was going on so much about Andy Serkis and Gollum. Yeah? Yeah. But that was actually an, an amazing achievement, really, wasn't it? The, the whole Gollum thing, it's kind of the imitators of that. You know, these, these holy CGI characters, there are a few of them that have gone down in history as being very, very poor achievements, like Jar Jar Binks and stuff like that. And there is a lot of kind of over-CGI'd stuff. But the decision to make Gollum a fully CGI character brought to life by Andy Serkis's whatever he does. I don't know what you would call what he does, but what he went on and did with things in like the Planet of the Apes trilogy and stuff like that. That was an incredible achievement, wasn't it? Yeah, well, definitely. It's kind, of invented, it's kind of invented motion capture, didn't it? Well, you think about the way video games are made now. They're made exactly the same way they captured Gollum. Mm. They, they don't get someone to animate the the video game character. They get the person acting or doing the voice acting to behave mm-hmm. as the character will in the game. So, yeah, that completely changed the game there. Um, for, and on top of that, a phenomenal performance that couldn't win an Oscar because uh, it's not a real character. I hope that fucking changes soon because by now, Andy Serkis would have four Oscars, potentially five if you want to include King Kong because he should have won for Gollum and he should have won for each of the Planet of the Ape films. It's it's you incredible know, what, what he he's does. He's playing a fucking different species. Like, 
and the Oscar like, oh well, it's not his actual face. Of course, it's not his actual. It's not his actual fucking face. Yeah, but they were more than happy to nominate John Hurt for an Oscar for um, playing the uh, fucking yeah, elephant, elephant man. man, and that's not his face either. It's it's. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's the whole point of acting is it's meant to be make believe, and it's it's incredible what he does, especially when you see the emotion that he's able to put on these faces, and that's what differentiates what Andy Serkis does. There's a lot of kind of CGI fully CGI'd characters where you just go, eh, do you know what I mean? I don't care. Yeah. You bloody care about the characters that Andy Serkis creates, you know? Especially caring about Gollum, and Gollum is a horrible, grotesque character. You care about those... Um, you care about the the, 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 the the contradictions and the, you know, the history and the way the ring, you know, because you get that little flashback to Andy Serkis as a... As, um, what was he called before he was called Gollum? Uh, Schmeagle. Schmeagle. And and the way the ring kind of transforms him into this, you know, absolute, you know, shell of a, of a you know, just an addict, you know. And I think that's just amazing what he did. And I, th- I think that's, you know, Andy Serkis is almost certainly going to be given an honorary Academy Award. But I think you're right. I think it's about time that the Academy, who are always very hidebound on stuff like this, recognise that what he does is as awards worthy as anything else that anyone does, you know. Speaking of like awards or accolades and success of the original trilogy, um, total production budget, and you know these things are always a bit estimated, $281 million across the three films. Um, the you know Films like that would cost about $281 million each these days, if you look at Avatar and stuff like that. Total box office across the three films, $2.9, nearly $3 billion across three films. All of these were like astronomical figures at the time. I mean, they've been surpassed since, but that's absolutely huge. Nominated for 30 Academy Awards and won 17. <whistles> including, let me get this right, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 nominations for The Return of the King, all of which it won. It was an absolute clean sweep. Jeez, oh man. It's uh, something else, really. And... So I think it's pretty safe to say we're fans of the original trilogy and, you know, the legacy of Lord of the Rings is now that if you if you have a an amazing kind of story that's, you know, never been brought to the screen, people will have another go at it and 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 and, and attempt to make a genuinely great movie. Dune. The fact that the Dune story is now being done with the with the depth that it's been done by um Denny Villeneuve is thanks to what Peter Jackson did. It and probably, you know, enabled Christopher Nolan to kind of say, I'm, I'm going to do these Batman films with a, with a new level of depth because it had been proven to work by Peter Jackson. And while a lot of blockbusters are, can be quite shit, Peter Jackson showed people what was possible in making... If you're going to make a massive film, you're going to spend a whole lot of money on film and you're going to have a big CGI budget and you're going to adapt on these great epic stories, you can actually make that a genuinely great movie if, you, if, you're, prepared to, if you're prepared to do it properly. So that's probably the legacy of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, right? Oh, definitely, yeah, for sure. Do you do you rewatch them often? Not too often because I don't want to get bored of them. Yeah, I'm like that with films. Uh, yeah, once I've seen it a few times, so that's probably the first time I've watched Lord of the Rings in maybe two, three years. Mm-hmm. And so, I'd probably right. give it another two, three years again before I was to go through them all again, just because you don't want to get tired of it. Yeah, I um, know exactly I'd, what you mean. 
I'm like that with like video games as well. I've just I've just played Batman, one of the Batman video games again, and I haven't hadn't played it since 2017. Yeah. And I'm still remembering things from when I played it the first time. So it's one of those things where you don't want to ruin it too yeah. much. Yeah, I get it. So Peter Jackson went off and did a couple of other things. He did a film called uh, The Lovely Bones. He did his version of King Kong, which I don't think either of us are particularly big fans of, are we? That No, that's a film that's too long and didn't need a lot of it in it. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, and it's a remake. It's, it's probably gonna. It's probably gonna. We probably we probably need to do a double bill remake. Hate watch of the nineteen seventy six King Kong and and Peter Jackson's King Kong. I know they've rebooted it again later with the Kong and, and you know Godzilla the, and stuff. The problem I have with that King Kong film is that I love the cast and you know what I actually like the kind of tone of mm. the film. I like the setting and I like the kind of just the imagery. But the first hour and twenty minutes is on the fucking boat. Yeah, that's unnecessary, isn't it? It's just ridiculous. Um, and I, I think that's what sets a bit of a template for what we're going to talk about with The Hobbit. I know Peter Jackson's not kind of the main person behind the TV series. We'll come back to that. When we talk about The Hobbit, it's almost like after that, Peter Jackson started making things long for the sake of it. Is that a yes. fair statement? Yeah, and I feel like the thing with The Lord of the Rings is he was trying to cram so much in, but it fell with King Kong and was just like, fuck it, let's have an hour on the boat. Yeah. But he then came back to do the Hobbit film series. And I remember at the time being slightly surprised to hear that he was going to do it as a trilogy because I didn't feel like there was enough material for a trilogy. What what, what did you yeah. think when they were starting to do The Hobbit? Yeah, another one of those ones where if you can read the book in the time it takes to, in less time than it takes to watch three films about one book, then you know there's a problem creating characters and creating love interests for characters. I just thought it was ridiculous. I think Desolation of Smaug is underrated as one of the kind of Lord of the Rings films. Mm -hmm. I think it's a really good film, but the main problem is is that with Lord of the Rings, like we've already said, the similar to the Mad Max Fury Road things, that they took the environment and they enhanced it a little bit Mm -hmm. for their purposes so they got loads of New Zealand mountains and then put you know Gondor and Mordor and all that kind of stuff into it mm -hmm. whereas The Hobbit was just in, almost entirely green screened and it and you can tell it was rushed and I think Peter Jackson was rushed by the studios to get it done but from 2012 to 2014 that's just not enough time for those films I think it, they cast Martin Freeman beautifully and all in all the cast's actually quite good but it's it just kind of lets itself down with the dodgy CGI, not really using Billy Connolly's character enough the way that he's used in the books. And yeah, it was, I think they just fleshed it out. It could have been like a fun film or maybe a two-parter, no more than that. But So to give you an idea of, I mean, there's two things. Doing it all green screen is, is a big is a big error. You're absolutely right because it becomes weightless and be and therefore meaningless. You know what I mean? It doesn't. It, it it's so obviously kind of. It starts to look like a cartoon. Do you know what I mean? The pacing and and the length that doing it as three films, I think, was it was a terrible error, and and I think probably led to the it being rushed and them doing everything CGI. Do you know what I mean? Because if you're going to cram that into kind of three films, I think they kind of suddenly it became a bit of a production line, didn't it? Yeah. But just to give you an idea of the sheer difference in scale of what they're doing, if you the, the Hobbit novel is three hundred and ten pages long. 
Yep. The uh, the first Lord of the Rings, the first installment of Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, is longer than that by itself. The, com- <laughs> the combined length of the three Lord of the Rings novels is well over a thousand pages. And that got three films. The Hobbit is 310 pages long and got three films. The whole thing was stretched incredibly thinly. And it just meant that, you know, the the final film, The Battle of the Five Armies, is like it, it doesn't have enough in it to kind of be a film by itself, you know? Maybe two movies. Maybe if they'd done it as two movies, it might have worked a bit better. They wouldn't have been taken on so much. They would have had the ability to kind of say, actually, we will do this more like the original Lord of the Rings with a better balance between CGI and live action. Maybe the story will be a bit more balanced and won't kind of feel overstretched and thin. But a trilogy of films based on one novel that's shorter than one film of the original Lord of the Rings trilogy, it just hasn't got enough going on to to justify that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I know what you mean. It's, it felt like it didn't have enough. It's like they, they had far too much material for the first three and then not enough for the, the Hobbit. Spot on. So, yeah, I'd... I mean, I I, 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 I quite liked the uh, the desolation of Smaug as well. I think obviously the confrontation with the dragon and the, the way it sets things up. I found the the first Hobbit film, an unexpected journey. I think there's two things. Again, there was a lot of kind of stumbling around and kind of having dinner with the dwarves. So I just think, oh come on, guys. Do you know what I mean? It's like this is taking far too long to get going, and also the the choice of the frame rate. Everyone kind of said this looks like a like a making of video rather than a film. Do you remember that? Do you remember that whole discussion about having too much? The resolution didn't look like a film anymore. Yeah, there was. They also used GoPros at some point, and it just looks rubbish. GoPro cameras should not be used when you're trying to make a like a blockbuster movie. Mm. Uh, yeah, they they just got they got. I think they got the casting right, and the story is obviously a fun story to make a film about. But the way they executed it was just wrong. Yeah, I think there's you know there's. But by the end of it, because they're kind of just throwing CGI at the screen and hoping everything sticks and stretching the story out, some of the kind of, you know, the the themes of like the Dwarf King kind of losing his, um, you know, losing his mind and, 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 you know, giving in to kind of greed and gold, it just kind of didn't, sort of didn't land. Do you know what I mean? It didn't land the way that it, that, that it should have done. And also the, it meant that the kind of really pivotal thing, that the way that Bilbo tricks the ring out of Gollum, kind of just gets lost in this kind of swirl of kind of, let's have another CGI battle with a million orcs, you know? Um, so successful, in your view, the Hobbit trilogy? Um, I mean, in terms of ticket sales, yeah, it made money, but successful in terms of like an actual like filmmaking skill? No, a, a big letdown. Yeah, I mean, that... Um I, th- I think you've, you've also got the problem, haven't you? As you said, that the, the, the original Hobbit book was intended to be for younger readers than Lord of the Rings. Uh, but now that Lord of the Rings has been done, almost the tone has been set that it has to kind of be gritty. It has to kind of have darkness. It has to ha- kind of be like, you know, an, an ordeal in the mountains. Do you know what I mean? Whereas the original yeah. Hobbit wasn't meant to be quite like that. But if they'd done it more in the original tone of the book, people would have gone, what's this? This is a, This is for kids, you know? So maybe they were on a hiding to nothing in a way, unless Peter Jackson had kind of set people's expectations and said, we're going to do The Hobbit like it was meant to be done, you know? Yeah. But, I, I, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to 
I'm going to make a statement here that may, you, you maybe agree with or don't agree with. But let, 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 let's let's just finish it off. So the the Hobbit films made about the same amount of money as the original Lord of the Rings trilogy, but like 15 years later, or 10 to 12 years later. Yeah. So Lord of Diminishing Returns means they haven't actually made as much money. Uh, you know, you know, with you know, adjusted for inflation, the three films cost nearly 750 million to make across the three films. So that's ahead of inflation. So he's the films are costing more, not making quite as much, and not really, um, not really as good, right? Yeah, and I'm I'm going to make a statement here. You can agree or disagree. Um, I think Peter Jackson peaked with the Lord of the Rings trilogy and hasn't really done anything of note or interest ever since in in, in almost twenty years. I think he's done things that are of interest, but they're not worth your time. Yeah, I mean, as as obviously the the documentary and stuff he's doing, the Beatles stuff and the uh, the World War One stuff. Uh, I know that he that's getting a lot of acclaim, but as far as feature films go, he he reached a peak and he's really fallen off ever since. Yeah, it's it's not been great in the past twenty years. I would say he's made a couple of interesting documentaries, but. Mm-hmm. On the whole, it's been weak, and that's fine. Documentaries are fine, but you know, when when someone has made the kind of feature films that he's made, he's almost like maybe not trying to make feature films anymore at all. Maybe he's realised that he's peaked as well. Because if you look at his his previous filmography before Lord of the Rings, Bad Taste, Meet the Feebles, Brain Dead. I mean, these are cult schlock horror, and they're very enjoyable, right? But they're not, you know, they're they're not Lord of the Rings, right? Heavenly Creatures is a very good movie. I mean, it's a sort of atypical Peter Jackson film but it's really good it's really worth watching and I think The Frighteners is a very underrated film but none of which gives you a, a clue that he would go and do Lord of the Rings and he, he hits this incredible peak with Lord of the Rings so he shoots up and then shoots back down again almost like a like a like a like a comet or something or a, yeah. or a shooting star and he just had this incredible period where Lord of the Rings the original trilogy is going to be his legacy you know I don't, yeah, I, I, don't, I, don't know, I, I don't know if you saw the film The Lovely Bones. No, is that the Nicole Kidman one? No, it's got um, it's got an early role for Saoirse Ronan. It's got... Oh, what am I thinking of then? I'm not sure. Yeah, sorry. But it, it's it's basically about a a girl who was murdered by a, a, like a, a, a child sex offender. And after her death, she, she kind of, she's, uh, you follow her in the afterlife while also following the, the aftermath for the her living you know loved ones left behind trying to deal with the grief and it's a very good book that i'm not sure necessarily would work as a film but peter jackson had a go anyway lynn ramsey had a go and decided not to make it because she didn't she thought it was a great story and she it was one of a number of films that she started to make and then chose not to because she she, she she'd rather not make it at all than make like a a, a compromised version of the film yeah. Peter Jackson cracked on, and I think he just went, I know, I'll use special effects to show what the afterlife looks like. And it's almost like he kind of... And he, he wasn't always like that. Heavenly Creatures has special effects and CGI, but not that much. You know what I mean? He kind of... he, he and, and, you know, Lord of the Rings only had as much CGI as it needed. But after that, it's almost as if he went, right, I'm going to make this big, I'm going to make this huge, I'm going to throw special effects at the screen. And it's almost like he's a victim of his own success, really, in the, the way he makes his films now. Yeah... It's a shame, really. But, I mean, at the end of the day, he still has that incredible trilogy and, and a, a, a shelf full of Oscars. 
um, for the three great films that he did make. This is true. This is true. He's he's made the, the, the one of the greatest, if not the greatest, trilogy of all time, and the extended edition adds so much more to the stories he's already mm. created. So he can be proud of that. Um, I do think the fantasy genre's kind of dried out a little bit, and that's hard for a director like Peter Jackson. So. It's interesting that the fantasy genre should have dried out like that because there's, as someone who reads a fair amount of fantasy fiction, they've barely dipped their toes in the water of great stories they could tell. Do you know what I mean? But it feels like they've kind of, um, when we're gonna we're gonna do the Rings of Power, but I mean they've they've I mean obviously done Game Game of Thrones and Game of Thrones has now been followed up with um, the the prequel, uh, and they had that. The Wheel of Time that Amazon tried to do, which is again based on a very kind of popular uh, sort of cycle of fantasy novels. There's so many great fantasy stories out there, but it feels like, I mean, without kind of you know, without kind of giving away too much about what you know about about the Rings of Power series, do do you feel like maybe they've gone, oh, fantasy, that's great. What we can do is we can get people some fun costumes and kind of, uh, you know. They've almost gone. Let's do what you know. You either go down the um, the Game of Thrones route and have lots of sex and violence, or you go down the the Lord of the Rings route and have lots of magic and excitement. But no one's kind of no one's kind of doing what made those stories work in the first place, which is take the original stories and make something that's true to it. If you see what I mean. Yeah. They're just kind of going, oh, fantasy that works. Let's throw some money. Let's throw some money at it and stick it on the screen and hope it works. Yeah, it's hard, and I don't think there's as much polish and like refinery to it yeah. now. It's just like fantasy, big director, big name, loads of money at it. See what happens. Yeah, and which is which is odd, really, because Peter Jackson, even though he went and kind of ignored all of his own lessons, he did provide the template for how to do it right. It's not like there's it's not like there's no examples of doing it right. I mean, ignoring the last couple of series of Game of Thrones, which fell away. There's four or five seasons of that, which are absolutely incredible television, you know. Yeah. And the you know the Lord of the Rings original trilogy is is tremendous, and you just think it's all there. There's there's a, there's an absolute handbook for getting it right. Go and get it right. Um, yeah. And it's not just fantasy, is it? Because like Marvel doesn't seem to be doing as well as it used to, notwithstanding the latest Black Panther film has done well, and the uh, Star Wars has kind of run aground. So it's. You know, it's kind of. I think we're going back to kind of the executives in the boardroom seem to have forgotten that what makes these things work is um, a good story well told. You know. Yeah, though I think, I think it was not not a flash in the pan, but I don't think we'll ever see anything like that no. again. So we're we're kind of prefacing the the rings of power. So. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm going to have to let you lead a, a little bit on this because having seen the the reviews and everything, Rings of Power, and with so many things to watch, I haven't yet watched the Rings of Power, but you have, and I think you've got some views on 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 how it's turned out, uh, and I think we probably need to turn over to you and say, Rings of Power, what did you think? Well, I'm not even going to let you, mate. I got five, six episodes in, and I couldn't be fucked with it. Um, just. I basically got my colleague at work to tell me what happens, and I said, "Mate, I got five episodes in. I started um, started hating the Hobbits. Um, 
which is something else. well they're not hobbits but they're called something else now but they're hobbits started hating them didn't really know what was going on there was no characters other than Galadriel and Elrond that I knew and then spoiler alert coming up if you're not seeing it I'm going to give you three seconds to fast forward turn off whatever but spoiler alert basically all that happens is somebody says Gandalf's catchphrase and you went to go oh okay that's Gandalf and then somebody says oh and then somebody creates Mount Doom yeah you see, for me, it's weird because it's kind of been caught up in the um, the latest uh, uh, nonsense that's coming out from far-right arseholes, which is go woke, go broke. It's like the problem is, is that they gave too many women and ethnic minorities uh, like jobs in in the story, and and that some of the storylines might actually be progressive. Notwithstanding the fact that in the original Lord of the Rings trilogy, the, the bad guys are obviously the Nazis and the good guys are obviously a collection of people, including um, people that you know would be classed as disabled if they were in our world today because they're so short. That It's like, what exactly is it about the original trilogy that says we shouldn't have any diversity in it? Do you know what I mean? And that diversity would be the problem and that not, and not, being, a, you know, and not being a Nazi would be the problem? Yeah. And it's like, but again, when... When things go wrong, people line up to uh, to slag it off for whatever reason they want to slag it off. But it seems to me, when I read the summary of it, the first thing I thought was, there's a really good flashback in the Lord of the Rings trilogy that you know I can't remember whether it starts the two. It's it's either it's it's the extended edition of either the Two Towers or the, or, the, or the Return of the King. I think there's a bit of it in in Fellowship of the Ring that kind of tells you how the whole previous kind of story played out. That Sauron yeah. got the ring, that men got greedy, fought over the ring, the ring turns you into a golem, it creates power for evil people, Mount Doom is terrible, and orcs and everything come from this this ring of power. It's like, okay, what exactly are we now going to do in, in the show that's going to be any kind of a surprise? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I think there is a... There is obviously the fact that people are going, the story's not very good, and I think that's probably a... I know there's a lot of kind of, you know... There's not a lot of actual completed novels or stories for them to base things on for um, from Tolkien. The only thing that he's done that hasn't been filled now is the Silmarillion, which isn't quite the same thing. But he created this huge, deep world. So there's plenty of material there for people to go, oh, well, that's what could happen in that story. Do you know what I mean? But it's like, it's like really? You're going to do the bit that we all know how it worked out. And there was a couple of really good flashbacks in, in the original kind of trilogy. Why? It seems so redundant to even do it, you know. Yeah, I don't know. It's it, it is a bit confusing because I thought they were really onto a winner with that, with the money they were putting behind it. They put for nearly a billion dollars into it, and I, I, just, I don't know what went wrong with it, and it's, it's a real shame. Well, this is the thing: is that maybe. <laughs> There's, there's a couple of things, and obviously I'll watch the show myself. And if I disagree strongly with you, I'll, I'll you know <laughs> come back and kind of follow it up. But the it hasn't been as as well regarded. It does seem to me to be you know the same again. Um, I mean, I I do like the new kind of Game of Thrones uh, series. Um, but what's interesting about that is that there's they've kind of They've not with the Game of Thrones series. They've not exactly gone back and done anything that that you learn all about in in Game of Thrones. Do you know what I mean? It's not like there's loads of flashbacks in the original Game of Thrones series that tell you all about what's going to happen in the uh, in in this latest kind of series. It's like they've they've taken a, an era in this rich world and gone. Yeah, we can create some new characters here. You, and 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 
But on the whole, I, I do wonder if perhaps the golden age of television might be coming to an end because A, these series are getting really bloated and and, and they, they seem to have lost the knack of doing great television. Yeah. And B, if someone's going to spend a billion dollars on something now, the boardroom has gone back to its old bad habits of going, we will do nothing interesting. We will just give, give people exactly what they've had before. We're going to just turn this into a massive sausage factory and a production line which is why you get in all these Marvel shows and Star Wars shows, and some of them are good, but a lot of them are absolute shit because no one is interested in quality anymore. And I wonder if that's just a problem. It's just like they'll spend a billion dollars because they know everyone's going to watch it, but no longer do they say, uh, you know, right, inventor of Breaking Bad, go and do a series and do it exactly the way you want to do it. Write The Wire, write, you know, Game of Thrones, you know, whoever it is, these great shows. They've kind of gone... Oh, let's just let's just churn it out. Who cares? People will watch it. People are done. Yeah. Let's not let's not watch it. You know, who, who cares if it's any good? And I and I just think I wonder if that's the problem. Yeah, I I think you're right. I don't think I have anything to add to it. I think they're just I think they're just thinking like we're in that era of this is a thing that existed before that people enjoyed, so let's do a spin-off, or let's do a prequel, or let's do a sequel, and it'll make money. It's not actually it's not actually about storytelling. Now, I'm not too sure that's what the Rings of Power have done, because I feel like they're actually trying to invest time into it. I think they've just got it wrong. But it does does feel like... like it feels like they only made The Hobbit because of the... of what the... the it, because it, it, of the success it was, it was of an Rings. entirely financial decision. Um, so, yeah... I, I I also think that it's it's again it's the the kind of the the, the lack of confidence in anything that is uh, that it's new. Do you know what I mean? Because Lord of the Rings is pre-existing IP. Let's make another Lord of the Rings show. Even though they've done the Hobbit and they've done Lord of the Rings and they've done it in great detail and they've done it so fully, there's not like another ten books by Tolkien that they can go. Oh yeah, Tolkien wrote a load of other stories. Let's do them. Tolkien didn't feel like. You know, there was a lot more story to tell and wrote 10 more books. You go, well, let's do the other Tolkien books. He felt like he'd said everything he needed to say. And there's nothing wrong with that. And the definitive kind of adaptation of Lord of the Rings has already been done. And if you fancy it, go back and watch the 1978 animated version because it's quite good, right? And there's some things to enjoy in the Hobbit series. So what exactly is it about that that feels to be revisited other than the money? They want to go back to the well and see if there's any money left to make. And it's really interesting that there are other like fantasy worlds that they could make. I mean, you you liked the Witcher TV series, didn't you? I mean, I've watched a couple of episodes. It's on my list to watch the rest of them. Do you feel like they've sustained that? Yes, but they're also, it's still weak. They're still finding their feet in, for mm. the Witcher compared to like the, the games and the books. Yeah, so there's, um, you know, maybe they need to kind of, you know, find their feet a bit. But I mean, there are plenty of other ones. I mean, Terry Pratchett's Discworld, although it's much more lighthearted, that would make a great TV show if someone could really crack it properly and do it, you know, as a Netflix show with real money behind it. I don't think the Sky versions of the books were very good. But, the, you know, that, there's still that, that to do. There's a series called The Farseer Trilogy by Robin Hobb, which was really good. There's a guy called Joe Abercrombie who's, um, who's, the universe is known as the first law universe and it's these really violent dark but brilliant kind of and he's done so he's done a whole bunch of books in that world that you could do um none of these are as hugely like financially successful but the, the audience is out there for this and if you say look this is the next fantasy show there are some great you know shows that to be made if people would just kind of you know go out and do it for example when they did the sandman 
they were, they actually got themselves a really good show because someone said, let's make a new show based on a really popular and good story. So it's possible to do it, but people have to stop going back and doing the same old shit over and over again, you know? Yeah. That, and I've not seen the Sandman, but it's got good reviews for being a kind of original. You know, it's a bit more refreshing. Yeah, I mean, the tone of it, well, like I say, it, it, the, 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 maybe it's not for everyone, but I don't think it should be. Not, not everything should be for everyone. I think the Sandman does a specific thing really well, and if you like that, you'll really, really enjoy it because it's really well done for what it is. And there's so many, there's so many good stuff out there. I mean, if they ignored the kind of shit film they made of it, if they were to actually do the Dark Tower series of Stephen King books, that would be really good as well. You know, there is so much that you could do with, with uh, you know, if, if they just showed a little bit. And it's not like, you know, Discworld is not exactly unpopular. Do you know what I mean? There is a huge audience waiting to see a good version of Discworld if someone would just do it. So it's almost like the problem with the Rings of Power is that they made it at all. Because I, I think the story that they're trying to tell has already been told in a in a in a good flashback. It's like yeah, it, it's like the um. In my view, they had a, the, the 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 Star Wars prequels kind of, you know, there's probably a good story to be told there, but they did have the handicap that it's kind of like we kind of know what happens. Darth Vader went over to the dark side. Do you know what I mean? And it's like to then do all of that and then throw in Rogue One and then throw all of that. I mean, I know a lot of people like Rogue One, but I think the problem with Rogue One, I, I don't think Rogue One is all that good. I think it's quite good, but I think people love it because it's full of fan service. It goes, oh, look, there's the Jedi City. Oh, look, they do that. Oh, look, Darth Vader's back. And it's just like, you know, they did a, they did a fill-in of, of, the, you know, of the bit between episodes three and four. And it's like, you feel like they're just squeezing the last drop out of out of the property, you know, instead of going out and trying to do something new. And and I think that's I think that's the problem with this with this Lord of the Rings. It's like I mean they've committed themselves to doing a lot more of them and maybe they'll sit down and try and improve them. And not every not every series had a great beginning. But the, 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 the fundamental problem is is that the people who've bought it are just there to make money, not make it not make a good show, in my humble opinion. And obviously I'll preface yeah. that by I'm, if I come back and watch it and go, guys, you're all wrong, it's amazing, I'll have to eat my words. But it seems to me, when I read the synopsis, that they're not, there's nothing new to tell. There's no new story to tell there. Yeah, no, I've, it's one of those ones where they, nowadays people are, unless you're a four-year-old kid who just wants to watch Transformers movies every summer, like you need to be, to be up there with like the big dogs and the the films that are like drawing people in, you need to be making stuff that's interesting. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Like I watched, uh, you know that film Burnt, Bradley Cooper did. All right. It got absolutely panned and it didn't get the reviews, but I actually enjoyed it because it was something different. Bradley Cooper was playing like this chef trying to get a Michelin star and it's it's not the best film, but it's, it's an interesting kind of um, story to kind of go down and it's just about the kind of pitfalls of this guy's character and how he comes like overcomes them to achieve his, his restaurant status and that was different because back in 2015 you were basically just getting Marvel, Marvel, DC, Marvel, DC, Marvel and Star Wars was just coming back. Yeah, it's 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 interesting that nowadays there's quite a few of those kind of shows about like a a, a a chef under huge amounts of pressure it might have maybe got a better um uh a better hearing if it came out now because there's been a few of those lately they did one with Stephen Graham it's kind of but like you say it's 
I think for for TV for TV shows, especially with Amazon, it's like guys, if you know that the audience is there for this kind of thing, and you've got the money, and you're you're not going to go bust doing a show, take a risk, take a creative risk, because the audience is there, and they probably appreciate something new and better. You know, for you know, and for films, it's like you know, God, these these films have a long life on streaming and everything else. You know, be a bit bolder about what you make. You know. It it it, it does yeah. it does fill me with a little bit of kind of concern that like the the blockbuster era has kind of taken away the audience for every other kind of film you know or reduced it so that they're kind of operating on the fringes or going straight to Netflix. It's like well that's fine so long as the big blockbusters keep performing, but Marvel's not performing, Star Wars isn't performing, the follow up to Harry Potter isn't performing. It's like God. It's the well starting to run dry. You might actually have to give the. Maybe we're about to go through another era, like the two thousands, when people got you know that you know they said, well, like, why don't we why don't we dip into Marvel and create some new stories? This Lord of the Rings stuff is good, or maybe more like you know the seventies or the you know when they said actually we might need to give the people with the stories and the ideas a bit more control because the executives have fucked it up again, you know. We go through these cycles, yeah. and I hope I hope someone goes back to that before the whole fucking art form dies. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's it's a shame, and I actually think they could be onto a win of the rings of power. But I think for the second season, they really need to pull it out the bat. And I think what we're going to get is a lot of fan service, mm. and I think they're going to streamline it to just kind of cater for that because. That's the best bits about the Hobbit was Andy Serkis's Gollum and the brief bits of Gandalf and mm. Bilbo and things like that. And then when it kind of strayed off of that path to characters that weren't meant to be in it, that's when you lost it. And mm. I think that's what they're going to have to do with things like the Rings of Power. Yeah, and that see, fan service for me isn't the right way to go. Um, but you know, it's. I, I I mean, what I'll say is I think what what Peter Jackson showed was how to do the original story the way that it was meant to be told. But you can only do that if the story is there. What Nolan did with the Batman trilogy, which I think is a really good example of that, is just to say what he did was basically canon. Like the whole bit of The Dark Knight Rises where where um, uh, Bruce Wayne gets that really bad back injury and has to kind of climb his way back, yeah? that's yeah. Ba- it's, it's basically canon because that's a storyline from the original Batman series. But he did it the Christopher Nolan way. So Nolan is is the one who says if you want to do something new, but but balance it with how you know with what the original material contains, then Nolan's probably your your um uh or Matt Reeves. The Matt Reeves version of the Batman again. He's gone back to supposedly such a familiar storyline. Oh yeah, here we go, Batman. How do you do anything new there? And he came up with something genuinely new, even though he's got the Penguin, Catwoman, Joker, the Riddler, um, you know the John Turturro plays a character previously played by Tom Wilkinson, but he manages to give it his own spin. And, you know, I think you can do it well and you can go back to these stories and do something good with them, but you don't do it by just giving people exactly what they got before. You've got to put a fresh spin on it somehow. So we'll see. Um, and if I, you know, I will publicly eat my words if it turns out that I actually like The Rings of Power because I am kind of basing this on A, the poor reviews it's got and B when I read the synopsis I just went I'm not going to rush out and watch that because it's it's nothing new but uh, yeah so it's it's funny because the Lord, the original Lord of the Rings film trilogy I think in summary is incredibly influential and a great it's, it's a perfect example of financially successful award winning 
change the game. And even, and even with all those things said, you can watch it again and, and find something new in it. They're great, they're great films that still stand up. They will continue to be the high point of the Lord of the Rings franchise until something new gets done, right? Yeah, I think so. But I think there's there's lessons in how they made those films and the, the way they told that story for anyone else who wants to do something good. And please do. Please go out and do something good and look through the list of kind of great fantasy shows that, that you could make or fantasy films that you could make. But don't just give everybody exactly what they've got before, you know, which means the executives need to shut the fuck up and give someone creative a chance. And that's yeah. not, the, it's not the first time we've said that. That's all for this month's episode of Double Reel. Thanks for listening and for making it all the way to the end. Thanks also to my co-host, James Adamson. The podcast was edited in Audacity and hosted on Anchor FM. We are grateful for their continued support. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. Nightcrawler is available on Netflix in the UK and on multiple US platforms. It's also available very cheaply on Blu-ray for all you physical format hipsters out there. The story of Martin Scorsese's Joker is based on nothing more than a couple of interviews with the man himself and wild speculation on the internet. Outside of Double Real, you can find us both hosting a non-film related podcast, The Adamson's Versus. Our latest episode, The Adamson's Versus The Government, is out now. So this is me, James Adamson, signing off and... This is me, James Adamson, signing off. Our next episode will be a special anthology episode of 2022, A Kubrick Odyssey, dropping soon, followed by our regular episode 33 next month. Keep an eye out for any special episodes we decide to do in future. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe and tell your friends. Until next time, stay safe, watch lots of films, and may your life be as awesome as you pretend it is on social media. And, oh, fuck DPD. Oh, fuck DPD. I'm sure there's a story behind that. Fuck them. I'm not even going to give them the context. Just fuck DPD. Don't use them. I'd rather you use a carrier pigeon to deliver your mail. Fucking cunts. <laughs> and just to add on that note everyone have a wonderful Christmas and New Year and we'll see you soon <laughs> oh yeah that too <laughs> <laughs>